So, a couple of things uh, before we get into the text today. It was a historic day last Sunday when you voted uh, in a very significant majority to call Mike Altry to be uh, your next pastor. Uh, that news has been conveyed to him, and he has indicated his desire to accept the call, and so all the wheels are turning to get that process through Presbytery in accordance with the timeline uh, that was laid out last week. And since you've forgotten that timeline, I'm going to just briefly tell you again uh, so you won't uh, have to ask too many times that probably we're talking about the second or third week in August before he gets here, right? That's the best guess? Yes. Yeah. Oh, wow, okay. Okay, all right. Um, so, um, don't stop praying, <laughs> you know. There are a lot of things that happen. Sell a house, buy a house, make plans to move, move, get settled. Oh, you, you, you know. So, um, some of you are going to ask me what, what I'm going to do. And uh, so... It's very interesting that in the providence of God, um, eight days ago, the Saturday before the vote on Sunday, I got an email from the elders at the PCA congregation in Eugene uh, asking me to consider becoming interim pastor down there. And I don't know if I can do that. It's a long way away. And secondly, I don't know if I should do that. And the reason I'm telling you that is to ask you to pray for wisdom for me and Sally and what the next step should be in our pilgrimage, okay? And I mean that sincerely. I just uh, don't know what to do. So uh, it's Pentecost Sunday, and um, I want to begin with a bad joke. Not a dirty joke, a bad joke. A, a, you know, a bad joke is a joke that nobody thinks is funny. And you have to be a little bit unusual maybe to laugh at this. I've told this to some ministers, and they laugh, but ministers are weird people, right? So anyway, um, here's the joke. The best way to disperse a crowd of Presbyterian and Reformed ministers is to get into the midst of them and somebody whisper, Holy Spirit. And they just, right? (laughs) Presbyterians don't tend to think about, talk about the Holy Spirit very much. Uh, In our communion, we tend to say he's the forgotten member of the Trinity. Um, In some places, people seem to be afraid of the Holy Spirit and certainly at least of talking about the Holy Spirit. And some people respond to that kind of talking and say, yes, 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 Alan, but the Holy Spirit receives way too much attention in some churches and some circles. And I would say, yeah, maybe, but is the right response to an overemphasis an overreaction in the opposite direction? I think the answer is clearly no. Um, And like that, like the Spirit Himself, the topic of spiritual gifts is often neglected in Presbyterian and Reformed churches. Um, For some people, it makes their blood kind of run cold. And it's for the same reason that the, the excesses and the the, the, uh, the things in, in, in some churches that just seem to be a little wild and crazy. Uh, but again, 
if the scriptures talk about it, we should talk about it. And the scriptures clearly do talk about spiritual gifts. So what I want to do in the next few minutes is to answer every question you've ever had about spiritual gifts. <laughs> and if you believe that, I'll sell you a bridge after the service, okay? Uh, what I really want to do is give you what I consider the basics, uh, the foundation, the fundamentals. Uh, there will be a lot of unanswered questions from this. Um, uh, but uh, some of you mentioned uh, um, how Jim Webb was an encourager. Well, that's a spiritual gift. And the use of it in the life of the body is, isn't the exercise of that. And, and, and so it's an important topic. And so we want to look at what are spiritual gifts, who has them, where do they come from, what are they for. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, Thank you that you are patient with people like us that are slow to learn. Thank you that you have given us the scriptures to teach us and to remind us. Lord, I think about the way the apostles said, we're going to put you in remembrance of certain things to stir you up by way of reminder. And many of the things we'll talk about today, Lord, we've heard about. And for some, they've never heard these things. And I pray you'd make them fresh and real. And I pray you'd use a wretchedly sinful, crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 1 Corinthians 12 is our text for today. We're going to look particularly at verse 7 but I will, in one way or another, mention most of the chapter throughout the sermon. So if you have a Bible or have one near, open it, and I think it'll help you uh, as you look at this. Uh, I'll remind you, we believe the Bible is the Word of God written, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. And in about spiritual gifts, uh, the apostle begins early talking about this in chapter 1, verse 7. Uh, he says, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. In chapter 1, verse 7, he says that. And in two, three other places, in addition to chapter 12, he mentions spiritual gifts, particularly in chapter 14, um, but in chapter 7 as well and some other places. So, but, but this will get us to a, to a helpful place. And so let's begin uh, reading in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers. And, and what he's saying here is that, look, people had asked him... He had gotten messages from Corinth. Uh, what about spiritual gifts? We got all this stuff happening down here. Help us, Paul. Give us some clarity. Give us some teaching. So he's responding to their question. Okay. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And that will be our text of the morning, but I want to read on because he fleshes that out in helpful ways. 
To each one, in verse 7, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. For just as the body, He moves in now to an illustration or or, or an analogy, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is... God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administering, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers will fade. This is God's word. It won't fade. It will abide forever and forever. Many of you will know very well that before time began... Uh, God the Son covenanted or agreed with God the Father that He would come to earth and redeem those that the Father had given to Him. You read about those that the Father had given to Him a lot in the, in the mid uh, parts of John's Gospel, John 14, 15, 16, 17, along in there. Jesus covenanted with His Father to come to earth and save those that the Father had given Him. And so, in the fullness of time, Jesus was incarnate, uh, by the whole, in the Virgin Mary, uh, by the Holy Spirit, and, and He was born. 
And he lived a sinless life in order to be a sinless sacrifice. He lived a sinless sacrifice for his people. I mean, a sinless life for his people. I owe to God a holy, perfect life. That's what he said to Adam. Live a perfect life, you'll live. Adam botched it. I ratify Adam's botching it every day. But Jesus came and lived and covenant, I mean, substituted for us in his life, in living the perfect life that God required. He also substituted for us in his death. He died in our place, the death we deserved. And then he was raised up and he ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. And from that right hand of the majesty on high, he poured out the Holy Spirit. He poured out the Holy Spirit on the church. And in accord accord uh, with Ephesians 4, uh, it says, He ascended on high and gave gifts to men, spiritual gifts, gifts which we in the church are to use for His glory and our joy. That's the big overview. Uh, Pentecost Sunday is the pouring out of the Spirit. Now, you will also know, some of you, that this church at Corinth was a troubled problematic church. There were particular sins here. There was a sin of division or factionalism. There was disunity. There was a party spirit. There was incest in this church. I mean, this church was in deep weeds, we might say. Uh, They had asked Paul questions about marriage, about spiritual gifts, about things sacrificed to idols, all kinds of things like that. And so this is the part where he's answering the question about spiritual gifts. And so I want to do is give a, a brief intro to, 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 to verse 7. That's my text. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I want to show how he got there and then how he fleshes that out a little bit uh, and cover those things. What are spiritual gifts? Who has spiritual gifts? What are they for? All those kinds of things, okay? So look at, at chapter uh, 12, beginning uh, uh, at verse uh, 2, actually. Um, and he says, look, when you were pagans... You were led astray to mute idols. Uh, you, you weren't confessing Christ. You weren't following Christ. Uh, you weren't honoring God. Um, um, without the Holy Spirit, in context, he's saying you're a pagan idolater. That's what he's saying. In verse 3, he says, look, no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And so, uh, if you have the Holy Spirit, you will never say Jesus is accursed. As a matter of fact, in that same verse, verse 3, it says uh, that you will say, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the phrase Jesus is Lord was the, the confession of faith that they made in those days. It was... Uh, Uh, an opposite, you might say, a polar opposite to uh, Caesar is Lord. No, Jesus is Lord. And and packed into the Jesus is Lord is is much of what we would want to say in confessing Christ today. In other words, if someone said Jesus is Lord, they're confessing Christ as Lord and Savior, to use our lingo, okay? And he says, look, you can't do that. You can't confess Christ unless you have the Holy Spirit. If you confess Jesus is Lord, then that's a proof you have the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Well, we're born in our dead, dead in our trespasses and sins. And the only way a person that's dead can confess Christ if they, is if they've experienced the new birth and they've been born again. 
Uh, and, and the new birth is, is born of this, to be born of the Spirit, to be born of the water and of the Spirit. And so you've got to be born of the Spirit to be able to confess Christ. Further, so I'm asserting that all Christians have the Holy Spirit, okay? And if you'll look down at verse 13, and even more so, and I'll, I'll tell you why this is important in a minute. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. So there are some people who say, yes, all Christians have the Holy Spirit, but not all Christians have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And I say, no, look at verse 13. So I was getting a haircut one day uh, near uh, Westland Plaza in Jackson, Mississippi, and I had heard this barber was a Christian, and I was a seminary student. So I went there, and... and, um, in the course of the haircut, you know, he's got the scissors and everything real close to my neck and everything, you know, and I'm just going to be careful. I said, uh, hey, I heard we got a common friend. Yeah, who's that? I said, Jesus. Oh, yeah. I said, uh, a little bit. And he said, you speak in tongues? You've been baptized by the Spirit? I said, no. He said, well, you're not a Christian. What? I'm not a Christian. Have you ever run into these people, by the way? You've run into some of these, you know? And, and I would just want to take him to verse 13 and say, look, the whole church, talking about the church at Corinth, which was a motley crew, you've got to admit. Um, in one spirit, we were all baptized. So he's not talking about a part of the church at Corinth. He's not talking about the apostles. He's saying the whole church has been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Some of you go, right? You're <laughs> glad to hear that. Because you may have had some friend tell you, well, you can't be a Christian unless you speak in tongues. You can't be a good Christian unless you speak in tongues or something like that. So it's certainly not true that the only sign of Holy Spirit baptism is speaking in tongues. Okay? And, and then if you go on in verse 4, um, he gives the, talks about the source of, of spiritual gifts. And it's very interesting if, if, if I was a, I'm a repressed teacher, but I don't have a board, so I won't put this out there for you. But look at this. There are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Now, um, you'll notice, perhaps, if you analyze that, that he's talking about the Trinity, right? There are varieties of gifts, the same spirit. Then in verse 5, the same Lord. And then verse 6, the same God. So you've got the Spirit, the Lord, Jesus, and God, the Father, okay? Um, and, and there are varieties of these gifts. And I think he's striking at the disunity of the church, because uh, this church, uh, Corinth, because three times in, in this little section, verses 4, 5, and 6, he uses the word same, the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. And so it's not this, well... You've got a different spirit or you don't have enough of the spirit or all that kind of stuff. Uh, He's saying, look, everybody's been baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the triune God, the spirit preeminently, yes. And and there's a possible progression there from gifts to service to to effects, okay? Now, we're talking about the source of these gifts, okay? Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. Now, all of these are empowered by one and the same spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. As he wills. These these gifts are sovereignly given as he wills. Look in verse 18. Um, In verse 18, 
It, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. As He chose. I don't choose my gift. You don't choose your gift. God chooses whatever gifts are given to individual people in the church. Wow. Now verse 7. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What is given? A manifestation of the Spirit. A spiritual gift. And, and I take it that a spiritual gift is some special ability from God that's to be used for service and activity in the church, given what he said in verses 4 through 6. There are three places in the New Testament where you have lists, lists rather, of spiritual gifts in verses 8 and following here, in Romans 12, verses 3 to 8, and Ephesians 4, verse 7. Uh, uh, again, if we had a, a, a chart or a, a projection screen, we might throw these up there. But you can, uh, after your nap this afternoon, you can look at those and compare those lists of gifts that he gives here in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans uh, 12 and Ephesians 4. And what you'll find is that the lists don't agree. The lists are not exactly the same in each of these three lists of spiritual gifts that are given. What are we to make of that? Well, I make of that that the lists are not exhaustive. They're not exhaustive. If they were exhaustive, if it was only one list of spiritual gifts, I think he'd give the same list in all three places and any other place it might have mentioned. But in fact, it, it's not that way. And so I think there may be other things that are not listed there that we could call spiritual gifts. Um, and I'll have more to say about that in a little bit. Here's another question that comes up when you think about what is given is this question, because uh, if you think about it very long, this question will come up. Um, must our spiritual gifts come after we are converted? Because if it's, a, if it's a spiritual gift, if it's a gift of the Spirit, and it's, I don't have the Spirit before I'm converted, then some people would conclude, well, anything that or ability I have before I'm converted can't be my spiritual gift because I had it before I had the Holy Spirit, right? Well, maybe not. Uh, the logic there kind of fits, but what is to prevent the Holy Spirit from taking a natural ability and refining it under the influence of the Spirit and it becoming a spiritual gift for that person? Uh, think of it this way. Suppose a person is an, is an excellent school teacher um, uh, could, before they're converted. And after they're converted, can teaching be their spiritual gift? Well, it might be, I think, if the Holy Spirit refines and uses that to, to convey spiritual uh, truth in, a, in a, an acceptable way. It could be that it's not. It could be that it's something else. But I don't think that it's the case that it, it has to be something that happens to you or is given to you after you're converted in order to be a spiritual gift, Okay. What is given? Spiritual gifts. Secondly, who has spiritual gifts? Who has spiritual gifts? The church. The church. Uh, or to use the word of uh, verse 7, each one, or to each, in some translations, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Um, every believer in Jesus Christ has at least one spiritual gift without exception. Men and women, young and old, slave and free, yellow, red, and black and white. If you're a Christian, you have at least one spiritual gift. 
Now, I've had Bible-believing Christians try to stare me down on this and say, well, pastor, no, 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 I'm sure that I don't have a spiritual gift. And I'd say, do you believe the Bible? Well, yes, I do. Well, what does verse 7 tell you? Well, verse 7 says that every Christian has, it, has a spiritual gift. That means you have a spiritual gift. Oh. Oh. Now, I think it's easily implied, especially by the body illustration that he uses uh, beginning in verse 12, that no one has all the spiritual gifts or even close to it. So what do we deduce from this? Well, and again, think of the body illustration. You know, you've got hands and eyes and feet and legs and arms and all this thing. Here's the first thing you can deduce. No Christian can be self-sufficient. No Christian can be self-sufficient. We tend to want to be that way. I mean, we're, 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 we live in what's called the West. I don't mean the West United States. I mean the West as opposed to the East. We're very individualistic, and, and, and the West here, the West Coast, uh, was, from what I can tell and what I've read and what I've talked to people, was... Uh, planted by people that were of a strong, you might call libertarian spirit, you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone, I can do it, yeah. But that's not what the text says. <laughs> the text says that we're a body and that we need one another. And it says, secondly, listen carefully, no Christian is useless or unimportant in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. No Christian is useless or unimportant. Every Christian has a spiritual gift that is important for the church to function well. And and that's what he's really saying in verses 15 and following. Look at that. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. So... What, so this, what he's doing in verses 15 and following is a person's evaluating their own spiritual gifts. They're thinking about themselves. And so there's a person that's looking at their spiritual gifts and says, well, I'm a foot. Or some of us would say, no, I'm not just a foot. I'm the little toe on the foot or something like that, right? And they, I'm a nothing. I'm nobody. I'm unimportant. And what the, 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 um, the burden of verses 15 and following is, no, you are important. Jesus put you in his church. He gifted you for a particular and important role to play. You mean every Christian? I mean every Christian is like that. And in, in verse 21 and following, he changes to evaluating the gifts of others. See, in verses 15 and following, it's more like, what am I to think of my gift? And in verses 21 and following, it's more to, what am I to think of their gifts? The eye cannot say to the hand, so suppose you think you're an eye in the church, you can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. See, nobody can say, I've got a superior type of gift, and I don't need you, I don't need you, I don't need you. That's exactly what he's saying. And he's obvious, here's a, a fourth thing that he's saying pretty obviously, is that differences in gifts and abilities exist. 
Now, why is that important? Well, <laughs> sad to say, we tend to think deep down, our default position is everybody ought to be like me, right? It's kind of ugly, kind of sad that we think that way. You know, we tend to think, well, you know, if more Christians are like me, the church would just be better, right? <laughs> you don't want to say that, I know, but some of you think that way, right? What, what? They're weird. What does that mean? They're not like me. That's what it means. Often, when you say other Christians are weird. But I'm not the rule or the standard about what everybody ought to be like. If someone is not exactly like you or me, it doesn't mean that they're unspiritual. So we're, we're talking now about what I said first, what, what, is a, what is given, spiritual gifts. Secondly, who has spiritual gifts? A little bit of an aside now. How do I find out what my spiritual gifts are? Um, the first thing I want to say is don't go neurotic on me, okay? <laughs> I've had people say, oh, I've got a spiritual gift. What is it? How do I find it out? <laughs> my first thing is relax, okay? Relax. Don't go neurotic. Begin with your desires. What do you want to do for the king and his kingdom? I've said before to you, it's a kind of a perverse view of God that, that the will of God for my life is always going to be unpleasant. Some of you are old enough like I am. You remember there were such things as bad medicine. I don't think there's any bad-tasting medicine out there today, but if you're past a certain age, you remember bad-tasting medicine, you know? It was all in these, these bottles, these elixirs that the, doc, that the pharmacist would get up. And you'd, you know, some people think the will of God's like that. Oh, good night. It's terrible, which is a perverse view of God, Right? That God would want to mess your life up? The God that's planned that you would be with Him in glory forever and ever, and He will bless your socks off throughout all eternity future? And you think, well, if I, if, I, if I try to do what God wants me to do on earth, it'll be awful. Don't start there, okay? Yes, there is pain on this earth. And there's pain in the Christian life. And there are missionaries that have been martyred for Jesus. I know all of that. That's true. But when you're trying to define your spiritual gifts, don't take a God-dishonoring view uh, that it's contrary to what I want to do. Start, with, start there. Get the opinion of fellow believers, fellow believers who will be honest with you. And not every believer will be honest with you, I hate to say, but you know, if you say, well, I think my spiritual gift might be this, and you talk to a mature Christian believer, you want to talk to somebody who will say, brother, I love you, but I think that's not right. Or somebody that would say, yeah, let's try it out. And then that's the third thing, test them. Begin with your desires, talk to other Christians, then test them and get feedback from people who will say, you're really wrong. <laughs> I've known people who thought, my gift is this, and Everybody else knew it wasn't, <laughs> and somebody needed to tell them for crying out loud, you know? And you need people, that, you need that kind of fellowship for the church to work right, okay? So I've already talked about our reaction to our gifts in verses 15 and following and, and, and everything, but, but let me just use a couple other words, okay? Suppose you've got, in Paul's way of thinking, one of the higher gifts, Okay? whatever that might be. 
He, he, I think he thinks teaching and prophesying uh, are pretty high on the list of spiritual gifts. What if you've got one of the gifts? Should I be proud of that? No, why not? I've already told you. You didn't get that gift on your own. It was sovereignly given to you. That's what verses 11, what is it, 11 and 18 say. Each one, is they're given by God. He's the one to decide. Well, so what, and, and now you, you can guess what I'm going to say about this next question. What if you think God's given you some of the lower echelon lists, gifts? Should I be disappointed? Nope, why not? They're sovereignly given. Same answer. Same answer. I can't be proud of what I have or despondent about what I don't have. God is sovereignly given the spiritual gifts to me that he wanted me to have for his glory and the good of the church. And so it's clear there should be no exaltation of one member over another in the church. And the body illustration makes that clear. Thirdly, why has God given these gifts? Third, and, and you'll look at the text. It's pretty easy. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. So whatever your spiritual gift is, it's not for you. Oh, it's for the common good. Well, who's it for? It's for me. It's for the rest of us. It's not primarily or exclusively for you. Oh. That's the reason when people are proud, and, 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 and just, I'm just going to be very direct, in some, um, some expressions of, of, of charismatic Pentecostal communions, it's kind of like, well, this is for me. No, it's not for you. you whatever your gift is, it's not for you. And, 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 and we've got to begin there. So we've got to discover, develop, and deploy our spiritual gifts so that others in the church might benefit. Verse 25, that there may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. Who are the ministers in the church? Well, the pastor's a minister, right? The elders and deacons are ministers, but in, in a very real sense, ministry in the church is mutual ministry, and we minister to one another. True spiritual growth in the church can only come when each person discovers and selflessly uses his or her gift for the common good. I want to take you, if you've got your Bible open, turn over to Ephesians chapter 4 at verse 16. Why has God given these gifts for the common good? And secondly, for the growth of the body of Christ, for the church. In Ephesians 4 at verse 16, he's been talking about spiritual gifts. Um, well, he, he, talking about the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit up in verses uh, 7, 8, 9, along up in there. But down in verse 16, he says this, um, from whom, from Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How are churches held together? How do churches grow? Well, when the various parts of the, of the body have discovered, developed, and are deploying their spiritual gifts, then the church begins to grow. And, and when those things, when that doesn't happen, the church will not grow as well. And that means this, this, is, this, is, this may be frightening for you, that your growth depends upon the growth of your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. 
That'll shake the Western individualism out of you, won't you? Because most of you would say, some of you would say, I can grow just on my own. No, you can't. So I'm a body. So, so let's, say, let's say I have this attitude that I'm a part of the body. Say I'm an elbow in the body of Christ, and, and I can grow on my own. So what is that going to look like? Well, so if I grow on my own, my elbow gets to be six inches out here. But wait a minute. No, that'd, look, that'd be weird, right? That'd be deformed. That wouldn't be good. Because the growth is interdependent rather than independent. We depend on one another. The growth of the church is not a one-man show by the preacher. If you think Mike Autry is going to come in here and grow this church all by himself, <laughs> you, 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 need to, you need to listen carefully to what this is saying, right? You do. And, 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 and church growth is not dropped down from heaven. It's each part functioning properly, right? To a, real, to a certain extent, we are incomplete without other people and their gifts. We cannot grow as well without them or their gifts. We cannot, they cannot grow as well without us and our gifts. Your new minister cannot grow well without your gifts, nor you without his. And so we're under obligation to use our gifts. Each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I need your gift. You need my gift. Everybody needs the spiritual gifts of the others in the body. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12 says, God has commanded us to strive to excel in building up the church. So our growth comes by dying to self and using our spiritual gifts to serve others. For a long period of time, when I was a pastor in Birmingham, when people were joining the church, I would ask them to make three commitments. I said, I want, look, if you join this church, I want you to make a Sunday morning commitment, come to worship, come to our education hour, um, that's on Sunday morning. That's your first commitment. Secondly, make a small group commitment. I want you to be in a small group because the church is too big for everybody to know everybody. It's, it's, it's uh, too big for everybody to share and bear one another's burdens. We need to get you in a small group. And thirdly, I want you to make a service commitment. I want you to make a commitment to die to self, take your spiritual gifts, and serve others in the body. I don't care how you do that. I don't care whether you go to the local rescue mission and take others with you so they get uh, stimulated in their growth. I don't care whether you lead a small group or teach in Sunday school or or wash dishes or serve food. I don't care how you die to self and serve. Uh, We'll figure out what your spiritual gifts are, but, but that's how I think churches grow. A couple other thoughts and I'm done. Um... We in the Presbyterian Reformed tradition talk about the means of grace, uh, the word, the sacraments, and prayer. And uh, the means of grace are, well, scripturally, how can I expect God to bring grace into my life, okay? And, and I hardly agree with uh, word and sacraments and prayer. Um, I also think that spiritual gifts probably should have been included in that list. Um, I don't think I'm a heretic to say that. I don't think I'm out of accord with my uh, ordination vows to say that. I just think if you ask, how is God going to mediate grace to me uh, as I walk uh, the, the Christian walk, as I live the Christian life? Uh, word, sacraments, and prayer, yes. But it's also, I think, going to be by means of 
the gifts of the body. Um, um, in, in Ephesians 4, it says grace was given to each one of us. Uh, and he's talking about gifts there. Grace was given to each one of us. And, and in, a, in 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, a very, I think, helpful little uh, passage in verses 10 and 11, he says, As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So Peter, talking about spiritual gifts, tends to talk of them as means of grace in in the church. And he tends to break them up into two broad categories. He who speaks, he speaks the oracle of God. Uh, He who, um, what's the exact word he used? Um, He who speaks, he who serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. I take it that that's word-based ministry and deed-based ministry or ministry that's led by elders and ministries that's led by deacons in two broad categories. However you want to parse that, it's very clear from 1 Corinthians 12, each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So discover, develop, and deploy your gift. And don't tell me you don't have one. Right? Don't tell me that, because I'm going to take you straight back to this text. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word and how it challenges us and how it comforts us. Um, There's both challenge and comfort in this that I need to discover and develop and deploy my gift. And that's the challenge. The, The comfort is that I'm not alone. My brothers and sisters have gifts that I need, and you've placed them in the body to be a blessing to me, to serve me as we mutually minister to one another. I pray that CVP will know this and experience this in an increasing way. And on this Pentecost Sunday, we'll look to you, Spirit of the living God, and say, fall fresh on us. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.